I learned this early on in my relationship with Jennifer because I think the first time that we ever went out, we weren't dating or anything yet, but we were going to go out together and I went over to her house and she and a housemate were eating some pizza. And I love pizza. And they had come to the end of as much of the pizza as they were going to eat and we were going to go out and you know what they did? They took that pizza box and all and threw it into the into the garbage and I had never witnessed such reckless abandon with food before and frankly I wasn't sure whether our relationship could go any farther I, I feel very passionate about food and when I see someone treat it like that it, leftovers are important to me uh, I, I feel this surge of of self-righteousness when I, I'm able to rescue some, some food that otherwise may have been tossed into the garbage. Uh, there, yeah, Walter and I are on the same page here. Kindred spirits. But even I, as much as I love leftovers, not even I serve leftovers to guests. You know, when company's coming over, it, it, leftovers are important to me, but still, leftovers, there's something that you eat when you want to cut corners, when you don't want to go to all the trouble of making a, a, a meal from scratch. Leftovers are the things that you eat when you're not really too concerned if the food is too mushy or too dry or if all the, all the tastes get blended in together. You just, you, you got the food there, it's ready, it's you go, and, and you're not too concerned about it. Today's passage doesn't talk about food leftovers, but I think it talks about worship leftovers. It talks about what we bring to God when our heart's not really in it. When we don't want to give God our best, but got to give him something. And we just serve up something that's left over at the end of our week, at the end of our emotional reserves at the end of our heart, maybe. We just, we just give them something, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's leftovers. At last, last week, if you were with us, we began our study in the book of Malachi, and we saw there that the people that Malachi addressed had lots of problems. They were, they were unfaithful. They were half-hearted. There was there, there was problems with their, their morality and their relationships and, and all kinds of issues going on. And we learned last week that the number one thing that God, God wanted to address and the number one thing that we need to grow, to grow is to see and experience the love of God. Today what we learn is that the, having seen and experienced the love of God, the number one thing with all the problems going on, the number one thing that God seeks in response to that expression of his love is a pure and wholehearted response of worship. He cares deeply about how we respond to him. Not just whether we worship or not, as we'll see, but how we worship. The attitude that we bring to him as we come to express to him who he is. And as you can perhaps imagine, God's not a big fan of worship leftovers. He wants our heart. He wants all of us, and he wants our best. 
with that as our background, I uh, want you to turn, if you have your Bibles with me, uh, to Malachi chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading from verses 6 to 14. Malachi 1, verses 6 to 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, oh, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of God. Now the first thing that this passage teaches is that you bring worship leftovers to a God that you really don't respect. That when we go through the motions and we bring God really half-hearted response, half-hearted response to his glorious love which he has proven and which he, we, we saw last week, that is really a response of disrespect. It shows something of how we value God and how little we value God and the response that we would make. Worship leftovers are for God you don't respect. Now, in Malachi's day, the people of God, we said, had returned. They had, they had come back to the promised land, and a hundred years has passed. They had come back with great expectations, but now they are facing much disappointment. Things hadn't, hadn't worked out the way they'd hoped for. It was harder than they thought. There were fewer of them than they thought. They thought that, like, everyone would, would leave Persia and return to the promised land, and there were just... There were just a, a small number of them, perhaps 150,000. Times were tougher than they expected. Uh, things were more difficult economically. And frankly, all of those circumstances got translated into disappointment with God. 
And so when it came time to offer worship, they just were able to somehow justify giving God not nothing, not, not, not avoiding it altogether, but just giving him a half-hearted response. So when they went to their herds, they would look through the, the animals that there were, and they would say, times are tough right now. We don't have a lot of money, and God hasn't really come through for us the way we thought. And they would pick out the lamb with a broken leg. They would pick out the goat that was blind. And they would say to themselves, well, it's going to get burned up anyway. It's going to be sacrificed anyway. What's the big deal? I mean, we'll save the good stuff for, for our, our meals and for breeding because we're, we're starting off. It's a new life. We, we've, got, we've got other things, that, other priorities. They figured it was good enough for God. And as you can imagine, God wasn't pleased. Now, God assumes that they should know how he feels about this, but it's clear that they don't. So what he does in verse 6 is he takes them to some relationships that he assumes that they do understand. In verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? The implication is that he feels any child should know that their father is to be respected. And yet their offerings suggest that they have very little respect for him. Any employee should know that their employer should be treated with respect. They know these things. They, they understand these things. And, and you understand those things too. You have that basic sense. We, we understand that the world's authorities should be treated with a measure of respect and honor. And his point is, if the world's authorities should be treated with that level of honor, how much more so the God who created the world? the God who had made them and who had formed them as a people who had created their very lives. Then in verse 80, he points to the civic, civic authorities. He says, present, present that to your governor. You take that, that lame, lame animal with the broken leg and, and go and offer that to your governor. He says, will he accept you or show you favor? And they knew that. They knew if they were to take a, a moldy piece of weak old lamb and offer it to, the, to their local MP that they would not be treated with favor. Things would not go well for them. And yet they were doing very much that same thing with God. Now in our day, one of the challenges is, is that oftentimes Children will grow up without ever learning that sense of honor and respect that a, a parent is to have, that an employer is to have. And so they enter into life having never learned to, to respect and honor the, uh, a, a father or mother, never having learned to treat their words as, as things to be, to, to be treated with respect. And they enter into an adulthood essentially having to start from scratch having to start from scratch and relating to employers and, 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 and teachers before them and, 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 and learning that authority, if it is not respected, that there are consequences in, in life. 
he assumes that they would have they would have seen them, but often we we don't we don't learn those lessons as children. And children who don't learn those lessons in childhood often have a, have difficulty making that transition as they have to then face those authorities as adults. And more importantly, they end up giving God the same kind of shrugging disrespect that they had learned to give to their parents, their teachers, and then their employers. Now, God takes all of this extremely personally. He charges the priests in verse 6 with despising his name. He feels this viscerally. It's, it's, it's coming at him not as some, like, uh, abstract sense of, of religion, but he feels this in his heart. He feels insulted and disrespected and devalued. And so we come to a passage like this and you ask yourself, what does my attitude in worship communicate about how I value or devalue God? What does it say about who I am? Are, are you... Are you ambitious in your career, but lethargic in your ministry? Are you all out for the team, but on the sidelines at church? Are you early for work and late for worship? Are you excited about your entertainment, but bored with the word of God? Do you sacrifice for your children, but find yourself skimping on God? What does your attitude towards the worship of God reveal about your heart and where God sits in your priorities, in your sense of what is, what is valued in life? Because what this passage teaches is that half-hearted worship shows contempt for God. He feels it personally. He's as offended as if we had served him moldy casserole for dinner. It communicates a sense of very little value, that he will get what is left over once all the important stuff is taken care of in my life. So worship leftovers are for a God you don't respect. Our worship reveals much about how we feel about God, and it's coming here before God will deal with a lot of seemingly to us, wow, that's a lot more serious. Why didn't you bring that up, up a little further in the, in the, in the letter? No, he doesn't do that because worship is foundational. It is foundational to how we respond to God. So he starts there. But often our attitude is that, well, leftovers are better than nothing. Beggars can't be choosers after all, and at least God got something. But God doesn't feel that way. And he's not a beggar. The next thing that you learn here from this passage is that worship leftovers are better off left in the compost. He is not, uh, not pleased with better than nothing. God is not a beggar. And God would rather, rather that half-hearted, that, that worship that ends up humiliating him rather than glorifying him does not bring pleasure to his heart. Worship leftovers are better off in the compost. Now, people seem to think that God loves religion. Even if they hate it, even if they're bored with it, surely it's going to impress God. There's something of, of, of that in, in our, 
our, our warped sense of seeing the world, I think. But in verse 13, it describes the people's response to the sacrifices they offer to God. Watch what it says. It says, you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Like, the people are saying, is it, is it Sunday morning? Oh, like, I just want to sleep some more. And, and don't tell me that I'm on, on nursery duty this morning. I don't think I'm going to be able to take that. And, and if the pastor is preaching from the Old Testament again, I just, please, like, I've had enough of it. That, 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 was, that was their response. They were bored with it. They were sniffing at it like, ugh, oh, groaning. And they were thinking, well, God's got to be impressed that at least he's getting something. Like, God's, God's got to be up there saying, okay, well, yeah, boy, they hated it, but they sure, they, they, they got it again this week. They, they did something at least. And you get to verse 10 and you realize, oh, that's not how God feels. God makes it clear how he feels about it. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He says, I I want the whole thing shut down. There's no heart. They're bored. They're sniffing at it. They're giving me leftovers. There's moldy lamb on the altar. And this, this, this humiliates me. It doesn't glorify me. Oh, that someone would shut the doors. He says what they're doing is in vain. That's an interesting phrase there. He's saying there's no purpose in it. It's not doing anything. In fact, it's, it, it could be harmful because it's deluding the people into thinking that they're doing something good and worthy for God and it's actually causing me deep pain and offense. I'm grieved over it. And if, if everyone would just stay home because that's really the condition of their hearts, he says, at, at least they would know that they've packed it in and they don't care for God at all. At least it would be honest. And you realize God's heart to worship leftovers. Just, it's a silly example maybe, it's a small example, but it's, that's one of the reasons why every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'll stand up here and say, let's examine our hearts. Because Mechanical worship where you just go through the motions, you just keep the form, but it doesn't really mean anything. Doesn't mean anything to God and in fact offends his heart. That's why we say if you're not a, if you're not a born again believer, if you haven't experienced the, the, the thing that this is pointing to, then just going through the form could do more harm than good. There's, there's, something, there's something that feels worthy about going through the forms of worship, but if our heart in it isn't in it, it doesn't mean anything. And it's, it's our heart that God is actually seeking after. He wants something real. He's not just interested in religion. He wants a heart relationship with each of us. He wants us to see and experience the love of God and then respond with a heart full of worship. Ultimately, God makes it clear that he won't accept worship leftovers. In verse 10, he makes this shocking. It's difficult even to read. He says, I have no pleasure in you. 
says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And and if you were here with us last week, you saw God persuading them, convincing them, I have loved you, I have loved you, I have loved you. He has loved them. But when they're going through the motions and snorting at worship that bores them, thinking that it pleases him, he loves them, but he doesn't take pleasure in them. And he won't accept their worship. He wants the heart. He wants a real connection. Now, David expressed that. David expressed the heart of true worship in 2 Samuel 24. He wanted to build an altar to the Lord, and and he came to this place. There was a man by the name of Arauna. He was a Jebusite, and and Arauna was like, wow, the the king has has visited me. This is is incredible. He wants to make an altar and make sacrifices to the Lord. And, and Arauna says, like, I'll give you the land. And he says, I've got some oxen. You can have them. Like, this is a king. You want to get into his good books. And, and, and so David is given free land, free oxen to make an offering. And David says, I don't want any part of it. He refuses it, and he insists on paying. And, and listen to what he says. In verse 24, he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, that cost me nothing. He could have gone through the motions. He could have done all of the same things. But he recognized that free worship communicates to God that he's cheap. Communicates cheap feelings towards God. Communicates a sense of emptiness in the worship. And David said, I have loved this God and this God has loved me Far more than that, I will not give him worship that costs me nothing. I'm not going to give him empty, leftover, mechanical worship. I'm, I give him a response to my heart. I give him who I am. And so as you come to this passage, you ask, what does your worship communicate to God about how you feel about it? Do you communicate by your worship that you're kind of bored with God? That he's just not that important to you? Is there some place you'd rather be? Like, honestly, is there some place? When you you come to worship God, are you thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon? Because that's got to be a whole lot more interesting. Does your worship cost you something? Does your service express your love for God and the importance that he has has in your life? Worship leftovers are better off left in the compost. Let's give God our best. So our attitude in worship is incredibly important to God. And we've said that worship leftovers are for a God that you don't respect. That, that our worship expresses something of how we value God. And then we said that worship left or, leftovers are better off left in the compost. God's not excited about, relation, about religion that doesn't engage our heart. He wants us. He, he wants us engaged. He wants our love, our response. Superficial, going through the motions worship does more harm than good.
when that's our heart, he says, better to shut it down. Finally, the passage teaches that worship leftovers are for, for people on the wrong side of history. Because what we learn in this passage is that worship, le worship leftovers are not going to be the norm forever. There will come a day when there will be a different standard and a different expression of worship. A, a worship that will be rich and luxurious. A worship that will be full of heart engagement. And it won't be in just a little pocket in Israel. It will be worldwide worship. And so worship leftovers are free for people on the wrong side of history. Now, history condemns previous generations whose, whose conduct in the light of time and history is seen to be inexcusable. And so today we look back on those, supported, those who supported slavery and we shake our heads and we say, how could that generation have gotten it so wrong? Today we reflect in disbelief at Nazis who committed incredible atrocities against the Jews. And we say, how could that generation have gotten it so wrong? We think of those who argued for segregation and opposed the civil rights era. And we say of those generations, they were on the wrong side of history. They, they came to a fork in the road and they chose poorly. And in light of history, in light of time, in the passage of time, we look back on those generations, we shake our heads and we say, how could they have gotten it so wrong? They were on the wrong side of history. And God makes a similar appeal in today's passage. In verse 10, he's just finished saying he won't accept the people's lame, diseased sacrifices. But in verse 11, he gives them an important reason. He starts with the word for, and it says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And when God uttered these words through the prophet, his name didn't seem so great. People didn't think he was so great. He was the God of a small people. He was a God with a, a small temple. He was a God who didn't have many followers. He just had a small ethnic province. And his name just didn't seem that great. And so giving him a lamb with a broken leg didn't seem like such a big deal. But God pointed to a time when that wouldn't be the case, when he would be worshipped from the east to the west, when there would be this global revival of worship for him that came not, not out, of, out of leftover, uh, unengaged, empty hearts, but worship that was energized by a sense of gratefulness and devotion. No, no longer half-hearted leftover worship, but here it's described as pure worship. It's, it's a reflection of the person's heart. It doesn't come tainted with wrong motive, with corrupt sense of, of, uh, of understanding how we relate to God. It'll be pure. It'll be from the east to the west. 
Instead of people despising God's name by their worship, as as he described in verse 6, in verse 11, twice God describes their worship as making his name great among the nations. The way they respond to his expression of love draws people in. They, they, lift, it and they lift it up and people, people see the worship and they say, who is this God? He must be so great that, that he, has, he has caused a people to love him so deeply. Who is this God? And his name is great among the nations. The turning point in the move from worship leftovers to what is described here in these verses, this worldwide global revival of pure worship came through the pure, spotless, sinless sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God had seed generations upon generations of empty ritual, of people giving leftover religion to God. And he said, I'm not going to accept that. And so he brought his own sacrifice. He brought his own son, whom whom was called the Lamb of God, and he was the perfect sacrifice that was offered for the sins of humanity. His life glorified God, and his death was the salvation of the world. And his sacrifice energizes pure worship. His sacrifice for us stirs within us, stirs within all who respond to it in faith, a desire to worship him extravagantly, to worship him with full and glad hearts. As Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His sacrifice ignited a movement. And many of you here this morning are, are part of what God is doing, a part of this worldwide revival of worship that God has been stirring, which he spoke of in these verses. There are people with a seriousness and an eagerness when I open up the word of God. There are people with a devotion to their worship that this world can't understand. People are like, like daylight savings time. Like, come on, people. What are you, you should be in bed. Like, what, what on earth would you want to come and give God your best for? What on earth are you doing all that, all that volunteer stuff for? Who are you? People don't understand. There are people who make sacrifices to serve, and they do so with dedication and heart. And it means something to God because it comes from a place of meaning. There are people who give generously and humbly with love and gratefulness. Many of you here are the fulfillment of this passage the fulfillment of this great hope, this worldwide spread of heartfelt, give God your best worship. But it's only just begun. We pray for our nation. We pray for for Canada, for Liberty Village. We pray for Move In and the ministry among the urban poor. We pray for First Nations people. We pray for Russia and Ukraine. We pray for India, for the Middle East and North Africa. We pray for these places where we have sent missionaries in which we are calling upon God. But we pray for them knowing that there is a great and wondrous day where 
all of these from all of these places will come this pure, extravagant response of love and devotion to a God who has brought the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We pray for these people knowing that there is a time coming when from the east to the west, pure, heartfelt worship will be lifted up. And we look to that day. We look with excitement to that day. So don't be on the wrong side of history. That day will come and we will look back. We'll look back to to 2019 and what we were doing in March. And there will be some who look back and will say, boy, there was a fork in the road there where I could have given God heart. And I just gave him empty worship. I gave him leftovers. Don't be on the wrong side of, of history. Make God's name great in the way you worship him. Let's lift him up among nations. Let's let's lift him up in our congregation. For he has loved us. And he wants, not the forms, he wants our heart. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we... We ask your forgiveness for half-hearted worship. We ask your forgiveness for going through the motions. Forgive us for giving our, our devotion, our true devotion, and our true sacrifices to the world, frankly. Help us to give you the worship that you deserve. Help us to give you worship that costs us something. Help us to make your name great in the way that we serve you. And thank you for the perfect, sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gave his life. He held nothing back that we might live for him. He's our hope. He's our sacrifice and our joy. And so we offer this prayer in his name. In Jesus' name.